You're listening to Rock Solid People, a podcast by Max King. The harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. Welcome to Rock Solid People. It's a podcast about amazing individuals in the disability space. My name is Max King. I'm the CEO of Ozcare Support, and we're very pleased today to have with us the CEO and founder of Carista, Daniel Bonner. Welcome to the podcast, Daniel. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Now, Carista, obviously, we're very keen to learn all about that and a little bit about you and your background. It's uh, it's an interesting time to be talking all things matching platform based, and I think you know the the importance of the platforms really comes to the fore when. We talk about the isolation that potentially a lockdowns and COVID has has generated. You're in Melbourne. I'm coming to you from south of Sydney. Both of those cities are in lockdown. I don't know when the uh, New South Wales is going to be lifted. And and you guys, look, I think it was 102 days. I heard that you'd been in lockdown previously. Don't want to get too caught up in COVID talk because that uh, that's all we see on the news. But and, and I'd be keen to see how it's affected your business. But yeah. Hmm. Danielle Bodner, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and how Krista was born and what Krista is. Okay, so yeah, I'm Danielle Bodner, CEO and founder of Krista. We call or refer to ourselves, for those that don't know anything about NDIS, much like the Match.com of the disability care industry in Australia. And we were born out of this new concept of the NDIS being consumer-directed. I'd previously been the general manager of a healthcare business across Australia New Zealand where we sold and marketed Tenor products, which is incontinence pads. So I'd learned a lot and I knew quite a few providers in the space, both aged care and disability. And what I knew about them was that they had a really difficult problem to solve and they were very good at care, but what they struggled with was to market, reach their target audience. And so this the biggest challenge I think around the NDIS is making sure that the participant and their family members get the very best care the first time around. Because what we know from being around for a long time is if you don't get the match right the first time, you could very quickly give up because it's quite an emotional, overwhelming task to find the right providers. And everyone knows someone with a family member with a disability. I've got family members, but I've got close friends that have got children and they didn't know where to find the right type of services. So we've got this problem where on the double cyber marketplace, so we've got a participant who, you know, the difference between a young girl with cerebral palsy living in Point Cook in Victoria versus an autistic teenage male living in Barrel versus an adult based up in Brisbane with a mental health condition, and even aged person over in WA, they're all completely different needs. They all are in different areas and they have a unique team that they need to build around themselves in order to build their capacity. So we've built a system and it's a hybrid product. It's part tech, part people, where we quickly and seamlessly triage. So we consider all things like where the participant is, what their diagnosis is, how functional they are across different anomalies, what they care about, uh, what language they speak, what cultural background they have, where they want to have the services at home, in clinic, at school, wherever. So we do all of that and where people might be looking for services for nine months, we can find them the services in nine hours uh, because of the process that we use. It is laborious for behind the scenes. So 
because the capacity changes in a provider network every single day. So you might have an OT available in Point Cook for the girl with cerebral palsy today. They may not be available at that organisation tomorrow. So it's a live and quick process. And we also, so where I say it's a hybrid model, we use tech as much as possible, so an algorithm, but we then every single, and we take about a 1,000 requests per month now, every single request that comes through, we call the person that's made the request. So we've got a heap of amazing women who have a healthcare background that make those calls and make sure that we get the match right the first time. And it's interesting you say that because whilst it's a tech platform, as you say, you can't, you can't move away from the human elements of, no. of what it is that you do, what we do. Uh, and picking up the phone is so important. Absolutely. I just think about my own children. I've got a couple of small kids and I wouldn't pick a worker off a platform. <laughs> they need to have a conversation with someone about it. What we're finding now, what we're moving to is we're going much deeper into the supply chain. So we're starting to assist families to actually complete the paperwork and you know, even providing for the providers on the other side of the platform, the admin services, even to take them right through to like sign up service level agreement because we want to take away as much of the hard work for the family as possible. And if we're collecting information at the start of the process, we don't want them to have to go through that terrible form-filling process time and again uh, just to find that maybe the services might not be right for them, you know. So that's where we're moving to. And I think that's really important that you you have identified that. And we've, as an organisation, whilst there's no NDIS price guide or budgets that are assigned towards helping people establish themselves on on the scheme, which we've always done a lot of pro bono work or, you know, yeah. just helping people along, you know, they, they, you know, we've never, we've never put a caveat that, you know, they have to be coming to us for the services after they get accepted. And we've very much been of, of the opinion that it's easy for us. We've done it a million times. We understand yeah. how to navigate the, the, the complexities. And if we can help people hold their hand or just advise them on how that, that yeah, as you say, it's, it's, a, it's a very tough system to, na- to navigate. As you mentioned, when we started this conversation, a, a quick knockback, and you can suddenly go and bury your head in the sand and decide that it's all too hard. And, and in fact, the last example I've got of that is, is a friend of mine. Uh, he's a doctor. I was helping his brother get onto the scheme. And it was a conversation I had with him four years ago. I had it two years ago. And finally, we, we managed to get yeah. across the line. And this is a professional family that have every skill set in the world to, to actually navigate this. They just all, it all got into the too hard basket. And, and to me, they're, if, that's, if they're struggling with that, you can only imagine that there are a number of people who've had, you know, other other issues in their lives, other, other challenges that makes it very difficult for. So that's exciting. And then one of the questions I had for you is essentially is, you know, what is Chris's long-term plan? What's your vision? Mm. Tell us a bit about that. Uh, so we're scaling up at the moment and we're, we're a for-profit company, but for social good, really. But we have a group of investors that have invested in the company and we'll be going back out for investment again soon where we'll be using technology as much as possible. So what we do currently with our team is, you know, we probably talk too much to clients as a way in which the machine can serve up suggestions and things like that. So we're investing in technology around that and also being able to predict or subtly suggest to mum or dad the types of services that might be needed based on another like family and like circumstance. So we've got We've taken nearly 20,000 requests to date. So we've got lots of data that we haven't used or accessed. We, Because of who we are and what we do, it's all hidden. I can't even access that type of data. But at the right time, we'll use the trend analysis to 
try and build the best process to seamlessly match the participant up with a, t- a full team and get the services cranking along and consistent and then even building in some best practice. We know that care planning meetings with the entire team is a really good way to get goals aligned, to you know make plans to move forward. And we've seen amazing things happen from facilitating that type of stuff. There's a way you can do it with technology. So we're really tapping into that. And that's, yeah, what our future looks like. We did think about different funding schemes like home care packages, which we dabble a little bit in and, you know, TAC and private health, things like that. But there's so much more to do around NDIS. We're pretty much sticking to the space. You know, even other countries, you know, we're, there's no need. There's so much work to do here. We're busy yeah. doing that. And and look, you know, all all that can come in time. And, and I have to say, it's interesting what you say about using technology. I'm a huge believer in it. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a huge. I, I hate the word technologist, but I guess that's probably a description that I'd apply. I think there's some real validity in using technology to make those suggestions. To, it doesn't mean that it's carte blanche. You, get, you know, it's, 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 it's you know, it, it doesn't have to necessarily be accepted. But you know, one of the advantages of technology is they can, as you say, look through those twenty thousand requests. Look at the success. Look at the failures, and they yeah. can they can pump out some suggestions quicker than you guys could you know read five of those data yeah. points you know and, and so there's some real some real validity in using that and then you might you know then it comes down to that human interaction so you have a huge technology base human interaction on top and you get the best outcomes yeah yeah that's right and I think that and yeah if we do share this with the provider network <laughs> we go for say I think we're so far behind in our space and. Yeah, systems being used, not appropriate for what we're doing. And by that, I mean, it can be really hard to engage with a provider because they're so busy out saving lives, making people better. And that has to be the priority. So how are we going to get the right type of provider reaching the right participant every single time? That's that's our vision. And I'm going to answer one of your questions that you're going to ask later on. But our vision is to impact a million people by 2025, because what we know from the pilot work we've done is when we, at one participant, we help another nine people in their network, family members, teachers, etc. So we're on our way and that drives us every single day. But we're not going to do it unless we keep discovering the problems and then fixing them with technology and also really good people as well, which we keep finding and putting on. We're putting on about three people over the next month, so awesome. it's going well. So how big is the team now? And, uh, and We've got about 12 people across client services or customer service product accounts and BD, and we're investing in more of the tech team coming up and more client services because of our growth. Yeah, so our future, what we're really quite careful about how much volume we take in because we want to call every single person that makes a request. So we don't, there's more scope for us to grow, but we will only trigger that growth by putting the right people on so that we can have that conversation with participants as they go through the process. So yeah. That's how we work. Challenge to have to sort of you know to be able to, to constrain growth by, on the basis that you know it's it's in on your terms and maybe just just a slight sort of a left field question, but you've obviously come from corporate. Any big takeaway lessons from that? Is it something you've always wanted to do? Have you always been? I mean, I know it says entrepreneurial in your in a, just in the bio and on LinkedIn. <laughs> What's your life lessons from the from the difference between the two? So I'm not a natural entrepreneur, I would say but I'm a natural action taker and decision maker. So I didn't fit the corporate world very well. And I probably tested people by making decisions that I probably wasn't supposed to be making, but at least we got somewhere. 
and I was always used to asking for forgiveness rather than permission. And so I can do that now without <laughs> – I do remember some large deals I did and, and yeah, some, some big decisions I made that I probably wasn't, you know, authorised to do, but it saved companies millions of dollars. <laughs> and uh, I won out of it. But ne- then I thought it's probably not the right place for me is the corporate world because I do that. And this is the perfect place for me because I make the decisions with the team, really. If we want to change direction or pivot, we could do that in the minute. And we do. Like, we make really quick decisions and anyone that good comes along, shout out to any good client service team members, but anyone that good comes along and we interview them, we just say, all right, we'll just put them on and we'll find, we'll, and then we, you know, so yeah, we're really quick decision makers and that's the only way we've been able to grow as quickly as we have. So I think... To be honest with you, I'm not a natural entrepreneur. I'm just a bit probably action orientated. And also this was a no-brainer for me. Like even when things were bad, actually in the 111 days we were in a hard lockdown for in Melbourne, I never thought that we would fail. I always knew that we would survive. And I've never once thought that, you know, one in 10 startup businesses survive. I never thought we'd be one of the nine that didn't. So... Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I remember, I th- and I was talking to, I was interviewing someone for a role today and I was talking to them about our journey. And I think it was sometime in 2019 when I felt like we'd finally turned the corner in a financial perspective. So bootstrapped by my wife and I, you know, some days, you know, some weeks we wouldn't pay ourselves, that classic entrepreneurial yep. thing. Yep. And that's okay. I'm, I'm okay with that. And, uh, and I remember just feeling like, I feel like we've turned the corner. Yeah. Because we sort of just had that kind of continuity of income coming in and it was yep. a weight off. And of course, then we've grown, and but it is a challenge, yeah. But I've never felt mm. we'll, we'll, we're in that position, so I'm really pleased and really happy for you that that's a, another, uh, you know, a kind of you know, vote of confidence in you and, and the model, because whilst you're striving for growth, you've also got to look after the yeah, the, the pennies and cents, you know. You yeah, can't, can't take your eye off that. So it's a con- constant battle and challenge to expand and grow and as you mentioned take team members on and commit to a salary commit to people yep. commit to them throughout that as you say 111 days of lockdown and, and challenges mm. that it comes about uh, look uh, and a more broad question then coming a bit out of the uh, carista lens aged care disability sectors we talk about where they're heading i'm always keen to get people who are who are sort of you know in the woods what's your what's your view what's what, where are we going i mean uh, and i'm not necessarily talking about independent assessments because i know that that's on everyone's yeah. list these days but NDIS aged care. What's your what's your take on the next five years? Um, well, I find it reasonably unpredictable. I can't imagine that the government <laughs> is ever going to not do NDIS in the future. So that was, would be my one prediction: is there'll always be an NDIS. I think it'll always be consumer directed to an extent. So from those perspectives, I feel like people in my position are quite safe. But I hope that we. I do think the biggest issue is this matchmaking issue and I do feel like at the provider, from a provider perspective, it's the administration and system issues that are blocking good people from servicing the right participant. So the space I am actually in, I feel like I am hopeful and I do predict that we'll start to see that being sold because there's a lot of money being thrown at it. So I do think it will get to 40 billion year on year in FY40 and 100 billion by FY50. I do think that, but it's only going to get there if we fix some of these blockages. And yeah, I yeah, I think that there's a lot of capacity out there. People say there's not enough capacity, there's not enough 
workers available for the network. There actually is. There is. The issue is the administration and the facilitation, you know, intake forms and all this crap that we make people fill out and, and print out when they're in lockdown. They don't have printers and things like that. That's yeah. the issue. There's, pl- I think there's plenty of capacity out there. So it's really fun solving that issue. Old people are going to get older. They're going to throw more money at it because the baby boomers took all of our cash and <laughs> they've got to put it somewhere. So they'll be richer and richer and spend more money and we'll spoil them more. So there's a big opportunity for aged care out there. But the problem we're solving in NDIS as NDIS providers and NDIS matchmakers is more complex. I think in aged care, you could take home care package level one to four and pretty much pick up a package off the shelf and say it's a bit of personal care, shower in the morning, three days a week, a bit of shopping and a meal preparation. Whereas with NDIS, it's kids to teenagers to adults to older people like it's newborns through to over 65s and the challenges are completely different per person and so this is a much more interesting problem to solve australia is the best country to to live in we are very well looked after from an ndis perspective i think it's amazing and i think that the community is kind of wrapping itself around it and you know, you even see competitors all come together in the provider space and try and work things out. They're not afraid to do that because it's such a complex issue and there's room for everyone. So I think there'll be more collaboration. There's actually the other thing that I see very clearly is lots of private equity family offices, a lot of investment coming into this space now too. It's pretty popular. Back in the day, we couldn't get a single cent into this business and now I get phone calls, which is fun, but I don't need it anymore. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, we're just hanging on. I'm doing the thing like you you have done, which is go poor for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've been there doing that every. I was checking some old files and some PL stuff the other day, and I was going to my personal bank account, and getting five grand out every few days for a while there. Yeah. But always knowing again that it's, it was well invested money, and and now we're in a good place. Yeah, and I want to circle back just the collaboration element that you mentioned there. And to me, this is one of the big takeaways from that I've seen. And, and having not come from a disability or healthcare background, I came from a recruitment background. I, I came into the industry, and when I when I first moved to, to Barrel and I first started Oscare Support, I was pretty um, pretty put off by the the level of engagement that I had with other disability organisations. Oh. I reached out to everyone, and they basically told me to go away. Right. Since then, you know, because I didn't take no for an answer, and I persevered, and I've mm. sort of. Now, even locally here in the Highlands or anywhere that I go, we, we, we are always say we're agnostic to the solution. So we, you know, come along. If we can't solve the problem, you know, we'll find someone who can and we'll pass clients on or we'll share clients or we'll work with oh, yeah. a couple of people. So, you know, it's that kind of thing. And I think more so that old-fashioned, don't forget that was four years ago when I first came here and DIAS was starting. I was a young punk coming into mm. the disability space. They didn't, I didn't really know what I was doing. And, you know, like, you know what I mean? We were, we were sort of fly by night. And yeah. Yeah, we, we wanted it now, of course, we know, I feel like we're, we're, you know, we're, we're doing what we do and we do it really, really well. So I'm really yeah. proud of what we, how, where we come from. But I still think that there's that level of collaboration that is going to become more and more pervasive. Right. So I probably wouldn't have spoken to you either. And I didn't get spoken to either when I first started. I think because there's a couple of things. We're all so time poor because it's really complex. But also, we definitely ask providers, we kind of do a secret screening process by asking 
what their background is, particularly if they're a new provider. We want to see some type of work in industry prior that, you know, RN is great at the very least, or have a few clients on their books so they know what they're doing because it is a steep learning curve. The other issue is there is fraudulent activity, you know, to the value of predicted around $2 billion year on year in the space. So, not everyone is perfect in this space. The majority of people working in industry are amazing and you probably wouldn't do it otherwise, but you do have to be careful. But I do see more and more, and I'm lucky enough now, much like you, to be as far down the track that we do get good engagement. But I think like it doesn't hurt to have that testing period because you have to be pretty resilient in this space. So if you haven't got that perseverance, you probably don't belong. Oh, look, it was water off a duck's back to me, uh, <laughs> you know, like, because, I, I, you know, I could be, I, you know, I could be, a, you ask my close friends to tell you I'm a pest, you know, if I want Oh, yeah, nice. Mm. I'll go get it. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> we came from recruitment. I come from a sales background. I was selling cotton yeah. So. Yeah, and, yeah. And there's, a, there's an, like, I, you know, I still think, you know, our mission statement, which was to, which is to empower great futures for our clients and their families, that still resonates with me. I mean, it's very important to me that we deliver that. You know, and, and I think, you know, it's it's interesting to see, you know, Krista doing that as well. You mentioned you've had 20,000 interactions and you want to positively impact a million people. I mean, I think that's so amazing, so powerful. I, I've never heard of the one to one to 10 ratio, but I'm going to try and steal that, I think. And, and yeah, you, do. You know, do. We, we, as I always talk about 10,000 clients. So if I say oh, yeah. 10,000 clients yeah. and we affect 100,000 people, yeah. I, I'd be super proud of that as an organization. Yep. To, to get into that sort of six figures basis. Yeah, well, I mean, I always talk about great futures for clients and their families. And I guess when you talk about that, yeah, you're probably talking about, you know, there's, there's got to be, a, you know, five or six people that you're affecting if you have a client, generally, oh. plus, plus. So, you know, I, I think that's good. And, and But at the same time, the figure you just quoted there, $2 billion of fraud, I have to say, I, 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 we've come across a number of instances of financial irregularities, financial abuse, which we reported to the commission and, and the fraud team. It is concerning when you see it. I haven't seen a figure of two billion anywhere, but I'm concerned with that. I mean, I, I don't know if that. I mean, that's, and I don't want to dwell on the negatives here because yeah. I, I do think they think that's a, that's a large number. I haven't seen it written, but I've just heard about it, and I, I don't think it's just your strict claiming you know, for a client and haven't delivered any of the services. But I think there's just a little bit of taking bits around the edge that's the problem. So making an assumption that you'll charge a certain amount for a report, for instance, even if you do, you know, three quarters of the hours, that's still, to me, not appropriate activity. And perhaps that it includes that. But I haven't seen it written anywhere. So quote me or not, but I do think that I guess, yeah, there's yeah, there's some activity and we've definitely seen some providers that they've quoted in one instance and then we've had feedback that, that they haven't delivered the services and taken more cash out of a plan. And with those, we do exit them and unsubscribe them from the platform. In fact, now we kind of, we, we can pretty much, from the questions we ask, kind of sniff it out. <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, and we work with both new providers and long-established providers. Fantastic. It doesn't matter how quickly they've entered or been around. Yeah, I just say, you know, watch every dollar, <laughs> approve every dollar, you know, get the right systems in place and the right team in place that you, you trust. Yeah, yeah. And I do think the NDIS has some responsibility on the fact that they have made the, the administration, the service agreements, the processing proto, the APIs, they've made it so difficult to navigate, so cumbersome and 
there's so many there's so many glaring issues where you know you'd expect in 2021 to have sort of seamless connectivity and you know you're from you're, if you're running a tech company you you know you would know what technology is out there we've got the new payments platform that oh, yeah. you know can uh, osco payments can go through straight away bank to bank transaction yeah. why don't we have a more seamless structure even the api which i'm trying to get access to at the moment <laughs> is like li- severely limited. And, and in fact, a pr- proposal that we're working on with some partners around a payment solution is exactly that. It's it's a really, really, you know, we actually can't get live information. It's it, To me, that's just weird. And yeah, someone at the NDIS, and in fact, one of my podcast interviews previous to this was Jess Harper, who previously has run the digital transformation team at the, oh, yeah. at the NDIA. And he has said, you know, they basically have restricted it on purpose. And to me, I'm just going, well, why? Yeah. Something on purpose, or at least if you're going to restrict on purpose, give us a time frame that we can access it and enable us to access it. It's an API. It's not like you're giving yeah. information away. You're not giving me access to everyone's Centrelink code. Just give yeah. me access to information that are my clients who give me permission to do. So I think they've got some responsibility, and I know it's an, I know it's difficult to navigate the system, but I, I definitely think it's, it's frustrating for me, and I'm sure for you that the, the speed at which transformation is happening at the NDIA. Yeah. Well. I'm always grateful that it's happened. <laughs> That's my first thing. Like, you know, no other country has a scheme like this. So I'm just really grateful it happened. And I have had some dealings, I guess. I just try and focus as much as possible on the provider space and trying to solve problems in that space because I still think despite the API issue, which is a big issue to solve, if we can solve, because I know I can get in at a provider level and fix problems really quickly with the tools that we have rather than try and fix the one big problem <laughs> at the end. So I think I think with the NDIA, it's such a big chunk of cash. It's 2% of our GDP and we were spending like 0% of our GDP on this before. So it's, it's a lot oh, of cash. Yeah. It's very political. It's with the most vulnerable sector in society. So I think around it is a lot of fear. So... That's probably what's stopping. I wouldn't like to be in a position to, you know, be handing out APIs and things like that. But I know it's it's frustrating. I think it, rather than get annoyed because I've been annoyed about it before, <laughs> I've tried really annoyed. So what I've had to do <laughs> is step back and go, what can I do that's not going to annoy me, that's going to make a difference? So my annoyed period about have finished about a year ago, and so that's what I've been trying to focus. On. And I think that's a great takeaway because you are making a difference. You are making a substantial difference. I wish you all the best on your journey towards helping a million people. And then after that, I wish you on a journey to helping another, another million. A million after <laughs> thank <that>. you. <laughs> no, thank you. And well done on uh, the work you do. And this is a great podcast. I definitely will be listening in in future. So thank you so much for having me. And thank you very much, Danielle Bonnard, CEO and founder of Krista. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Rock Solid People. For more interviews, stay tuned.